So let me ask you a question. How do you want to be remembered? How do you want to be remembered? By the way, we will all be remembered one day. Should the Lord tarry, all of us will simply be a memory. So when that time comes for you, how do you want to be remembered? If I were to be called this week to to preach your funeral, what would you like for me to be able to say about you speaking honestly, right? What would you want me to be able to honestly affirm uh, as something that was good and godly in your life? What were the things that you valued or what were the ways that you prioritized uh, your life for the service of God, how you devoted your life to him and what your walk with God was like and how that fleshed itself out in the church and in the community and in your family. What would you want me to say at your funeral? And if you could listen to what was being spoken at your funeral by me or anybody else, do you think that you would be pleased and gratified by what was being said Or are you concerned that perhaps you might be a bit embarrassed or ashamed at what might need to be said? I know I've told you in the past about the two brothers who lived in a small Midwestern town. One of those towns out in the Midwest where, or out in the western part of our nation where the entire town, it's kind of like a ghost town. You know, only four or five hundred people live there and everybody knows everybody. And in one of those small towns, there were two brothers who were notorious Brothers, known by everybody in town because they terrorized the town constantly with their wild drinking parties and carousing and chasing women. Both these brothers were vulgar and crude and dishonest and rude to everyone that they met. And this was their reputation in the town. And one day, one of those brothers died. And the surviving brother went to the pastor of the only Baptist church in the entire town. And he said, I want you to preach my brother's funeral. And the pastor said, of course I will. And he said, but here's the thing. I want you to call, your, call my brother a saint when you speak about him. The pastor said, I can't call your brother a saint. Everybody in town knows your brother was crude and rude and vile and ungodly and a, and a drunken reveler. I can't. Call him a saint, and his surviving brother said, here's the deal, you call him a saint, I'll give your church $100,000. And the pastor said, you're on. Well, the word spread, right? Because everybody in town knew that the pastor was going to sell out for a hundred grand, and the entire town came out to the funeral to hear if he would really sell his integrity to get a $100,000 donation to his church. They filled the church. They stood around outside. They leaned in the windows and listened. And the pastor took the podium with the deceased body lying in front of him. And first words out of his mouth were, thank you for being here today. We all know that the deceased was a vile and vulgar man. He was a drunk and a reveler. He was crude and he was rude. Well, he was the farthest thing from God you could imagine. But compared to his brother sitting here, he was a saint. (laughs) Now, here's, here's my advice to you. When your funeral comes, don't make it hard on your pastor, okay? What do you want to be remembered as when you're gone? Well, what about King David? Because we've gathered here today to begin this series about King David, so I, it had me thinking, I wonder what might be spoken 
at King David's funeral, what could have been said about him when he died? Now, you have your Bibles open to 1 Samuel. You can stay there. I want to read to you a couple of verses from 2 Chronicles, I'm sorry, 1 Chronicles chapter number 29, where we read about David's death and his funeral. We're going to talk about his beginning today, but let me read about his, his end. 1 Chronicles 29, 26 says, Thus David, the son of Jesse, reigned over Israel. The time that he reigned over Israel was 40 years. Uh, Seven years he reigned in Hebron, and 33 years he reigned in Jerusalem. Verse 28 says, And he died. But when David died, he died in a good old age, full of days, full of riches, and full of honor. So the Bible says when David died, he was of a good old age. I would like for that to be true of us as well, if God would allow it, that we would die of a full old age. But the Bible says that he died of these days in which he experienced great joy. He had a full life. I'd like for that to be able to be said about me, a life lived fully for God, that he enjoyed his days, the text says, It says that he died full of wealth. Now, David was a king, right? So he did die full of material wealth or monetary wealth. But do you know that you can die wealthy and not have any money in the bank at all when you die, right? Because because wealth is not measured always. In fact, mostly it's not measured in terms of money. My father-in-law loves to say, if you have your health and the love of your family, you're as wealthy as anybody on the face of the earth. And I, I really do... Believe that so we can die full of days that were lived for the glory of God that we enjoyed fully, wealthy in many, many things other than money perhaps. And then most importantly, it says he died filled with honor, that his life was honored by those who remembered him. And so I wonder what they would have said in honoring him. Maybe they would have said of David that he was a faithful and an obedient son. And that would have been true. He was that to his father, Jesse. They might have said he was a hard worker and a good shepherd, and he was. He was a a devoted friend. They could have called David a patriot and a warrior, and he was a patriot and a mighty warrior in Israel. They might have said he was a statesman, a skilled leader, a wonderful king who was devoted to God and committed to his family. That's a pretty good eulogy to be given of someone's life, and I would love it if someone could say similar things about my life and your life when we are remembered. Now, I should say to you, uh, as I'm celebrating those things about David's life, he was far from perfect. And if you know his story very well, you know that to be sure. Like all of us, David had uh, deep flaws in his life. And he committed, over the course of his life, some gross sins and made some terrible decisions and some awful mistakes. But his heart was to please God. That was his desire, is that his life would honor the Lord. This is what the Bible teaches us about this man who lived 3,000 years ago. And if we could follow his life, if we could, as the title of this series says, put our feet in the footsteps of of David, hopefully by God's grace, avoiding some of the pitfalls and mistakes and sins that he committed. But if we could learn to have a heart like David had and walk in the footsteps of David and, and live a life like he lived, then we could navigate these difficult and worrisome days that we live in 
we could navigate them in a way that would be full of influence and full of impact and that would bring much glory to God. And that's my desire over these coming weeks. That is my hope. And I hope you'll be here for each of these Sundays because we're going to go to school on the life of David. And we're going to try to put our feet in most of his footsteps, not in all of them but in most of them. Before we jump into the text today, let me introduce David to you. Some of you don't know very much about him at all. Others of you know a lot about him. Maybe you think you know everything about him, but perhaps you'll learn some new things this morning. One thing that you should know when you consider the life of David, especially really any biblical character, but particularly the life of David, you should know that ancestry or lineage or genealogy is important. And one of the things about David is that you can trace his ancestry all the way back to Abraham, Father Abraham, and you can do it through his great great grandfather, whose name was Solomon. Now, not Solomon, that's his son. His great great grandfather was named Solomon, spelled like you spell the fish salmon. Maybe you pronounce it salmon. I don't know. But I pronounce it Solomon. This was his great, great grandfather. Solomon was, I believe, and I don't know this for sure, but I'm pretty confident that Solomon was one of the two spies that Joshua sent into the land of Canaan at Jericho just before the Israelites came in and began to conquer the entire land of Canaan. If you remember from uh, Joshua Chapter four, five, six, right in that area, uh, Moses, or I'm sorry, Joshua sent in two spies and they encountered a harlot, a ritual harlot, a pagan harlot by the name of Rahab. And Rahab had faith in their God and she was saved when everyone else, she and her family were saved when everyone else in Jericho died in the battle over Jericho. And, and Rahab married a Jewish man or an Israeli man named Solomon. I believe he was one of the two spies that came in. Maybe, maybe not. But Rahab and Solomon had a son. And their son was Boaz. Now, Boaz is famous only because of his wife, right? Because Boaz married a Moabite pagan girl by the name of Ruth. And you know Ruth because she has a book named after her in the Bible, the Old Testament book, of Ruth. Well, Boaz and Ruth had a son whose name was Obed. Obed then had a son whose name was Jesse, and Jesse, of course, is the father of David in our text. So when you start with David and you go back to Jesse, Obed, Boaz, Solomon, then you can continue backwards tracing his ancestry all the way back to Abraham. That's an important thing for you to know his genealogy. I'll tell you why in just a second. There's something else you should know about David, and many of you will know this. It is that he is a shepherd. That's his occupation when we meet him in 1 Samuel 16. Now, I call it his occupation. It's not a job. It's a chore. He's doing it for his dad. He's keeping Jesse, his father's sheep. He's a shepherd, but he's a young shepherd. He's probably, when we meet him in chapter 16, 14 to 15 years old, somewhere in there. He's a shepherd. He's also a musician. He's a musician and a singer and a songwriter. He played the harp. He played a number of instruments. He also wrote, he's credited with about half of the book of Psalms. So about of, out of 150 Psalms, he wrote 73, uh, maybe even 75 of those Psalms. 
the third thing I would tell you is that David was the second king of Israel, not the first. He was the second king of Israel, but he was their greatest king. He was their greatest king for a number of reasons, but mainly because he was the forebear or the prototype of the ultimate king of the Jews who would come a thousand years after David, born in Bethlehem, named Jesus, who we were singing about earlier that one day will come again as king of all kings and, and lord of all lords, the king of the Jews and the king of all the nations, Jesus. And so Jesus is in the lineage of David. That's important. Because the Bible says that the, that the Messiah, the King of, the, uh, of eternity, Jesus, must be a descendant or a son of King David. And this is the reason the gospel writers, when you read Matthew and Luke particularly, they are so meticulous to trace the genealogy of Jesus all the way back through David and then ultimately all the way back uh, to Abraham. So he was Israel's second king and greatest king and the forebear of the Messiah. In fact, listen to what Paul said about his lineage, Jesus' lineage that is, in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 8. Paul writes, one of the last things Paul ever wrote, by the way, remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. Here's what Paul says. Two things you need to know about Jesus. Two important things. If I had to boil it down to two things I would tell you about Jesus, as I'm nearing my martyrdom, Paul would say, here's what you need to know. He descended from David because that's an Old Testament requirement for the Messiah, and he rose from the dead. That is, he died for our sins and rose from the dead. It's important to know that David is the forebear of Jesus the Messiah. Something that's an interesting and maybe a not so well-known fact about David is that David is the most mentioned person in the Bible. That is to say that there's no other name in the Bible mentioned more than the name of David. Not even the name of Jesus. The name of David is found in Scripture about 1,100 times. The name Jesus is there about 1,000 times. Moses runs a close third. His name's mentioned in the Bible about 800 times. And then it drops really quickly down to Abraham, number four. He's about 300 times. There's no other person in the Bible mentioned more than David. Chuck Swindoll, in his biography on the life of David, estimates that if you, if you calculated how many chapters in the Bible are dedicated to describing the life of this one man, David, you would find about 60. Think about it. It's an enormous volume of material in the Bible, 60 full chapters dedicated to describing the life of this one Man, And you may say, well, if he's the most named man in the Bible and there are more chapters in the Bible about him than any other human being, um, if he's this, this so important person, how can a man who lived 3,000 years ago have any real relevance in my life in the 21st century? What can I learn from somebody who lived 3,000 years ago? Well, I want you to know that David is going to provide for us in the weeks to come both good and bad examples and teaching and illustrations about how to be the kind of husband that you need to be, what it means to be in a marriage, what it means to be a good parent or a bad parent. We see this in David. David teaches us about dealing with anxiety and depression. In David, we see how to appropriately but fully grieve great loss when we say that God is our refuge 
and our strength. In David, we learn about self-control and the lack of it as well and the consequences of that. We learn about truthfulness. We learn about generosity. We learn about horrible sin and repentance. David teaches us about bravery. He teaches us about worship. He teaches us about stewardship. All of these are life lessons that you can glean from this man who lived three millennia ago. And by God's grace, in these coming weeks, we are going to um, dissect his life. And we are going to learn much. Now, you have your Bibles open to 1 Samuel 16. Hold your finger there. Go back one page to chapter 13. Let me begin reading our text by looking at two verses in chapter 13, please. Look at 1 Samuel 13, verse 13. It says, And Samuel said to Saul. Now, Saul was the first king of Israel before David became king. Samuel was the prophet of God during this time. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly in that you have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded thee. Uh, For the Lord would have uh, established your kingdom upon Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord hath sought a man after his own heart, and the Lord hath commanded him to be a captain over his people, because you have not kept that which the Lord commanded. It's a really important moment in in the narrative of the history of Israel because what's happening in verse number 13 and 14 is that there is a door closing on one chapter of Israel's history and another door being opened. Now, it will be a number of years after this statement before Saul is, is killed and will leave the throne and David will ascend the throne. That won't happen for a number of years. But in chapter 13, God declares that it's going to happen. In chapter 13, God says, I'm I'm finished with Saul as my king. I'm going to find another who will be my king. And so this anointing of David as king occurs in chapter number 16. Look at verse 1. Chapter 16, verse 1. The Lord said unto Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing that I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Feel your horn with oil and go, I will send thee to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, or Jesse that lives in Bethlehem, for I have provided for myself, for I have chosen a king from among his sons. So Samuel makes his way to Bethlehem. He comes to Jesse's house. He says to Jesse, gather your sons. God is going to anoint one of them to be the next king. Look at chapter 16, verse 6. And it came to pass when they were come, that is when the sons of Jesse came in, came to pass when they were come that he looked on Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. I have not chosen him, for the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Then Jesse called his second oldest son, Abinadab, and made him to pass before Samuel. And the Lord said, I have not chosen this one either. Verse number 9, Then Jesse made Shema to pass by, and the Lord said, I have not chosen this one either. Verse 10, Again Jesse made seven of his sons to pass before Samuel. And Samuel said unto Jesse, The Lord has not chosen 
these. Now you can imagine the, the moment of confusion in Samuel's heart because he comes to Jesse. God has told me one of your sons will be the king. Bring them in. And you imagine he's parading them through one after the other. From the oldest to the least, they're coming through one after the other. And God's going, no, no, no. And the last one comes through and God says, no. And Jesse's like, I don't get it. I thought it was one of your sons. And he looks to Jesse and says, do you have any more sons? And Jesse would have never thought that David was the one. It wasn't even worth calling David out of the field. And so he responds and says, well, yeah, there's one more. Look at it, verse 11. Are these all of your children? He said, well, there's one more, the youngest. Behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said unto Jesse, send and fetch him. We will not sit down until he has come. So they sent and brought him in. Verse 12 says, now David was ruddy and of a beautiful countenance and good to look at. He's a good looking young man. And the Lord said, arise, that's him, I choose him, arise, anoint him, for this is he. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren. And the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Now, verse number one of chapter 16 is clear, isn't it? Could it be any more explicit? In verse number one, God says, I have rejected Saul and I have chosen another. I have rejected this king and I will provide for myself another king from among Jesse's sons. But the question is why? Why did God reject Saul, the text tells us, chapter 13, verse number 14, it's very clear. He says, I have rejected you. Look at the end of verse number 14, because. I've rejected Saul because he has not kept that which the Lord commanded. Why did God reject Saul? Here's why. Because Saul rejected God's authority in his life. Because Saul demanded to do things his own way. He demanded in his own pride that he knew better. He would be king of his life and king of Israel, and God rejected him because he rejected God's authority. I mentioned to you that uh, Chuck Swindoll has a wonderful biography on the life of David. In fact, I would highly recommend it to you, but I was interested this week to read his comments on King Saul. Let me read to you what Swindoll says. He says, King Saul is a real piece of work. It's a pretty good description. He's a real piece of work. After he became king of Israel, his actions and decisions soon revealed to the people that he was a selfish, angry, hateful, and mean-spirited man. Eventually, something snapped in his mind, and during the latter years of his rule, he lost touch with reality, thus proving himself unqualified for the job. That's who Saul was. Now, the truth is, Saul was never really the man for the job anyway. He wasn't. He, he was never really the man for the job because Israel didn't need a king. They had a king. They lived in a theocracy. God was their king and that was enough. And yet they lived around nations of people, all of whom had kings. And when they would go to the king conferences, right? When they would, they would go, all the kings from these other nations would come and the representatives of Israel would come to the king conference and they would say, where's your king? And they would well, he's in heaven, he can't come, right? And so God's our king and it was weird for them and so the people finally demanded, we want a king and they begged and berated Samuel until finally God allowed it and they named Saul as their king. But the truth is, 
he was a disaster. He was a disaster for the most part from the very beginning. In fact, God said this of him, 1 Samuel 15, look at it in verse number 11. God said, it repenteth me or I regret that I have made Saul king. I regret it. I mean, Saul's a train wreck. So we know why God rejected Saul, but why did God choose David? Well, let me answer why he chose David by telling you, first of all, why he didn't choose David. Or the re- not what were not the reasons why he chose David would be the right way to say that. First of all, write this down. He did not choose David because of his position. That's to say his position in Jesse's family. See, in that culture and in that day, the way that the inheritance would be handed down is that it always went. The power, the authority, the wealth, the influence, the blessing always went to the oldest son. Who was the oldest son? It wasn't, Jesse, or wasn't uh, David. It was Eliab. That's the reason when Eliab comes in in chapter 16, Saul, or Samuel says, this is the one, right? He's the oldest. He's the strongest. He's in the right position. God said, no, he's not the one. He didn't choose David because of his position. David was the youngest. The least in position. Number two, he didn't choose David because of David's power. That is to say, the power of his personality or the strength or the force of his personality or his influence. That would have have gone to Eliab or Shema or one of the other older brothers. Here's my point. God did not choose David because of his position or because of his power. If y'all are listening, shout amen. Hear me, God could care less about position and power. He doesn't care. It means nothing to him. He doesn't choose people on the basis of what we bring to the table. He doesn't need us to bring anything to the table. He'll give us everything that we need at the table. He does not choose us for his glory and for his usefulness on the basis of position or power. Why did he choose David? He chose David because of his heart. The Bible is explicit about this, that the Bible says that David had a heart that was a heart after God. I mean, to choose somebody because of their power or their position, that was why they chose Saul in the first place. The Bible tells us Saul was was a son of of a prestigious family and he stood head and shoulders above everybody else in Israel. He was a man's man. And yet they made the wrong choice in him. And and David was a little guy. He's just a teenager, 14, 15 years old. He was a cute teenager, but he was just a teenager. I mean, the Bible says, chapter 16, verse 11 and 12, he was ruddy. It means he was red, reddish. That might mean David had red hair. I have a red-headed grandson, so I sort of lean in that direction a little bit, maybe. No, actually, I don't think it means his red hair at all. Red hair would have been very unusual. It's not... Not that it never happens, but very unusual for a Jewish young man. I think it means his skin. He was a shepherd, so spent a lot of time outside. His skin was burned, browned, leathered, if you will, by the sun. I think that's what it meant. The Bible says in chapter 16, verse number 12, he had a beautiful countenance. Here's what it means. He had beautiful eyes. David had pretty eyes. He was a good-looking young man, but he was just a kid. But he had the right Look at chapter 13, verse number 14. For God is looking for someone with a heart whose heart is after the heart of God. And by the way, this is the testimony that God gave of David in the New Testament. Acts 13, 22 says, When he had removed Saul, he raised up unto them David to be their king, 
to whom God gave this testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, to be a man after my own heart, which shall fulfill all of my will. And so David was chosen by God because he was a man after God's own heart. I want to talk to you about that in the time that we have remaining. I see some of you taking notes, and I love it when you do that. And so I want you to jot this down if you're a note taker. Would you think with me about the search? And I want you to see this in the passage today, the search. You'll see it in chapter 13, verse number 14. It says, the Lord sought for a man. The Lord sought for a man. The word sought means to seek out or to search for or to to, uh, seek to discover or to look for. The Lord looked for a man, verse 14 says. Now, can we agree on something? Here's a good point of theology. God needs no man. Do you agree with that? In God's character and omnipotent power and his omnipresence and his all-knowing mind and eternal uh, transcendent self, he is utterly self-sufficient. He doesn't need us for anything. But in his grace, he seeks to join himself with men and women. And he does it for a variety of reasons. You should be encouraged by this, by the way. Because God often seeks us out for our restoration. Some of you are here this morning, you say, I, I need for some things to be restored in my life. Man, I need some restoration. I've, I've destroyed some things. I've broken some things. I've fallen to some low places and I just need some restoration. Well, here's the good news. The Lord searches for people to restore. Amen. Praise God for that. If you doubt it, do you remember Genesis chapter 3? When Adam had fallen so far, plunged himself and all of humanity into sin, covered himself with fig leaves, was hiding in the garden, he and Eve. And what did God do? He came searching. Adam, where are you? He searches us for restoration. One of the most beautiful pictures of this is in John 21 in the New Testament when Peter, the apostle Peter, quits the apostleship business. He quits being a disciple because he failed miserably. He denied Jesus three times on the night of his arrest and and crucifixion. He felt so horrible about what he did. He said, I'm a terrible disciple. I'm going to go back and be a fisherman again. And he quit. He had fallen so low. If you read John 21, one of the most tender, restorative scenes in all the Bible is Jesus shows up on the shore of Galilee and calls to Peter and says, sit down, sit down, have breakfast with me. And he says three times, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And he restores him to his purpose. Do you understand? God seeks us out to restore us. And if you need restoration this morning, I've come to tell you about a seeking shepherd who's looking for you. God seeks us out sometimes that he might rescue us. It's not that we've been with him and fallen. It's that we're running from him and we've never even known him. We're like a lost lamb. I sometimes say lost is a duck in the desert, and a duck in the desert is lost. We're so far away, and he comes looking for us. The Bible tells us this in Luke 15, the parable of the lost sheep, where a man has a hundred sheep, he's got plenty. He loses one, but he leaves the 99 to go find the one. I want to tell you, if you don't know Christ today, he is seeking for you to rescue your life. Sometimes he seeks us in our loneliness to, to comfort us when we're alone. Some of you are feeling that this morning. It's a beautiful story in John chapter 9 where Jesus goes to a man who's rejected by his family, rejected by his community, and kicked out of his synagogue. And Jesus goes and finds him when he's alone. 
and, and comforts him in his loneliness. I could give you a lot of other reasons. I just want you to know this is who God is. But the Bible says in chapter 13, verse number 14, that God is seeking out a man. In this case, in David's case, he's seeking out a man who will be the captain over his people. See, here's what God does. And I want you to know he does this for every one of us. Don't miss this. God, in his grace, he doesn't need us, but in his grace, like David, he seeks us out so that he might make us useful to his kingdom. And when he finds the person that he can use, he will use their lives and wring their lives out completely for his glory. And what a privilege it is to be wrung out for his glory. The Bible tells us this in 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse number 9. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is fully devoted for him. God is always looking for the person that he might use. Isaiah 6 and verse 8 says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, God is searching. Whom shall I send? Who will go forth for us? And Isaiah said, here am I. Send me. I want you to know that God's searching for you today and your response should be, here am I, send me. We should be like the second grader who wants to answer the teacher's question on the third day of school. Ooh, 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 pick me, pick me. God is searching and you and I should want to be chosen. But the question is, will he, will he choose us? Because there is a selection process in fact, we've heard about the search. I want you to write down what this text tells us about the selection. What is God's selection criteria? Well, chapter 16, verse 7 tells us it's unlike any criteria that any of us would use. Look at it. Verse 7 of chapter 16. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. For man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Here's what I want you to know. That it wasn't David's power. It wasn't his position. It wasn't his influence. It wasn't his greatness. It was one thing that qualified David for God's selection for this purpose. And it was his heart. And we've already learned that David's heart was after God's. But what does that mean? When the Bible says that he was a man after God's own heart, what does it mean? What does it look like to be a man after God's heart? Well, I've taught you this for years, and so many of you will know this, but the word after in this passage means to be down from or below. I like to say it this way, to be downstream from. The man or the woman with a heart after God's own heart is a man or a woman who is downstream from God. That means... That everything that is of God, God's word, God's ways, God's will, God's pleasure, God's priorities, God's values, what God weeps over, what God celebrates, all the things that matter to God just flow down to me. And so it means the person after God's heart is a person who is not out in front in their lives, doing what they want to do, chasing their own ambitions, and saying, hey, God, come along with me. That's been me on more than one occasion. That's not a person after God's heart. The person after God's heart is the one that says, you are Lord. I want to be and do what you want me to be and do. And so as I go live my life, Lord, I am not in the front. I am in the rear. I am not the leader. I'm the follower. I'm not creating the stream. I'm in the stream. 
that you are in and I want you to flow into my life. And we're gonna spend the next two months talking about that life. What does it look like? How does it flesh out to be a person downstream from God's heart? But let me just give you two things that come to mind from the text this morning. First of all, I believe that we can see in David that a man or a woman after God's heart will first of all live to serve God's purpose. I think that's a key characteristic, that when someone is after God's heart, here's, here's their value system. What they value the most is what God wants. What's God's purpose? Acts 13, God said, David is a man after my own heart who will fulfill all my will. That's a life that lives to do the purposes of God. I will do what God wants me to do. Have you said that, by the way? Is that your value? Is that your primary value in life. I will do and be what God wants me to do and be. Christ is my Lord and all of my life is positioned downstream from him. That's what it looks like to do the purposes of God, to have our lives wrung out for the glory of God. The second thing about a man or a woman after God's heart is one who will desire to obey God's word. For Samuel 13, 14 it was spoken of Saul, you did not keep God's word. That's why you have been rejected. I have found a man who will do or who will keep my word. He will keep my commandments. That is a man after my heart. Now, David didn't always do it, right? David failed because he's imperfect like us. But his desire was to keep the word and the commandments of God. I just want to say to you, I want you to hear my heart. I want to be that guy. I do. I'm not always, but I always want to be. And I hope you want to be that guy or that gal as well. Let me close in the last couple of minutes by just directing your attention to what the Bible says in chapter 16, verse 13, about David's assignment. Because you've got the search, and then you've got the selection, and then you have the assignment. God seeks men and women for a purpose, for an assignment. And David's assignment was very specific. I mean, it was, it was crystal clear. Chapter 13, verse 14 tells us, he will be the captain over my people. Chapter 16, verse 1 tells us, I have chosen a king out of Jesse's sons. Chapter 16, verse number 13, he was anointed to be king. His assignment is clear. He's to be the king of Israel. God chooses us for a very specific assignment. Um, boy, there are a lot of examples in Scripture. What about... Joseph in the Old Testament, he had a very specific assignment. Essentially, he was to be the vice regent of Egypt so he could save the nation of Israel. That was his assignment. Uh, what about Moses? Very specific assignment. Go and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Lead them into, out of Egypt into freedom. What about Paul? Very specific assignment. You are to preach the gospel to kings. Write most of the New Testament. God chooses us for a specific Assignment. So here's my question. What is yours? What is your assignment? Now, I can answer that in general terms that apply to many of us. For, for example, if you're a man and you're married, God has given you a very specific assignment related to your wife. Very clear, unambiguous, absolutely clear in scriptures of what it means for you to be a godly husband. It is your assignment to be that kind of husband to your wife. 
If you're a wife, God's given you a very specific assignment in regards to your husband. God has given parents very specific assignments uh, regarding how we train up and raise our children. But those are general. They're specific to each of us, but they apply to many of us. But then there are more specific assignments that we have. Maybe you're a student here today, and I'm so proud of our students and our student ministry. Maybe as a student, you're here today, and your assignment is to be an influence for Christ on your campus that's going to radically change your campus for the glory of God. It's going to bring revival and renewal to the campus on which you attend. That's what God's assigned to you in this particular season. Maybe you're a community leader. And in in the community, in some place of influence in our community, then you have an assignment there. Maybe you're a business leader. Maybe God's calling you to full-time ministry and missions or or pastoral ministry or some other form of full-time ministry, but there is an assignment that God has given you. And here's what I want you to know, that when you become the man or woman that seeks to be downstream from God, I don't want to be out front asking God to come with me. I want to position myself to receive from him a man after his heart, a woman after his heart. He will make your assignment clear And then he will give you everything you need for that assignment. He didn't choose you for the assignment because of what you brought to the table. He didn't choose you because of your power, your position. He'll give you what you need for that assignment. And when you will seek him, he will make it clear. That's what God did for David. Chapter 16, verse number 13. David comes in, ruddy, all good-looking 15-year-old boy about comes walking in, has no idea that Samuel the prophet is there, doesn't know his seven brothers have already passed by and been, been uh, uh, rejected as the chosen king. He comes walking in, probably smells like sheep, I guarantee you. He wasn't clean. He comes walking in, there stands Samuel, the great prophet of God. He must have been taken aback by that. And Jesse says, boy, get up here. And God speaks into Samuel's ear. He's the one. I've tasked him with being the king anointed. And Samuel takes the horn of sacred oil, the vial of sacred oil, and he pulls little David close. And I don't know what he said to him. He did it in the midst of his brothers. His brothers saw it, but they obviously didn't know what was happening. They didn't understand it. We'll talk about how we know that later on. But he pulls him close, maybe whispered in his ear, anointed him, and Samuel left. And you may think, well, that was kind of a non-event, right? I mean, that was anticlimactic. Until you read the last part of verse number 13. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. When God gives you a task, he will assign it to you and then he will pour the Spirit of God into your life to empower you for everything that he calls you to do. I can't be the husband God wants me to be. Yes, you can. Because the Spirit of God lives in you. Well, I can't raise these kids. I'm failing as a parent. No, you don't have to. Because the Spirit of God lives in you. I want to make a difference on my campus, but I can't. Yes, you can. Because the Spirit of God abides within you. Do you understand? He calls you to himself. When you become a man or woman after his heart, he gives you a task. And he gives you everything you need to fulfill that task. And so here's what I want to encourage you to pray as we close today. What is your assignment? What is it? And if you say, I have no idea, I have no clue what my assignment is, then here's my encouragement to you. Become a man or a woman after God's heart. and Begin to seek it.
and he will make it clear. And then he'll give you everything that you need. Amen?